Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. Uh, And in this episode, I'd like to just talk about a conversation that I had with Jared McCabe from Wakeland Property Advisory. In fact, uh, in the show notes is a link to a recording of a presentation that we that Jared and I did uh, recently, uh, which you're obviously very welcome to uh, watch. But this podcast uh, sort of serves as a summary of that conversation. And I, uh, Jared and I asked ourselves, you know, I asked him some questions, he asked me some questions, and I like to pick six of the questions that I thought yielded um, probably the most interesting answers, if you like, and, and go through them. Uh, I paraphrase uh, Jared's commentary, so I certainly apologise if I haven't uh, got it across verbatim, but my, my goal is really just to communicate the theme of his responses uh, and I hope I do that justice on his behalf. So uh, there's a bunch of changes that are proposed by the ALP that will potentially impact uh, property investors directly. In fact, there is uh, six changes. Uh, and I started the presentation just going through those changes, which I'll do um, uh, quickly now. So in order of importance or impact, I guess, let's start off with the least impactful changes and then uh, work our way down the list. So the first one is the ALP want to cap tax advice fees to $3,000 a year. So, you know, if you've got a particular tax issue um, and, you know, the tax issues can be rather complex uh, to, to try and get to the end of that and uh, find a solution that's in your best interest uh, might require you to pay a specialist tax advisor, accountant and so forth. Uh, Well, the ALP wants to sort of curb that. Um, A bit of an interesting one. Uh, Secondly, uh, they're going to increase the top marginal tax rate from 47 to 49%. Uh, Number three, they have mooted a flat tax rate for discretionary trusts of 30%, uh, whereas at the moment with a discretionary trust, you can stream income or capital different beneficiaries help you kind of reduce or spread your tax burden across your family, uh, particularly if you've got non-working adult children that's um, uh, or, or non-working parents, that can be a good one. Uh, number four, no borrowing inside super. So uh, whilst the large banks have withdrawn, they're still mortgage managers that lend uh, to, to, to super funds to borrow to buy property, but the LP said they're going to ban that. And the last two, which are that garnish the most attention, is the increase in capital gains tax. So really it's the reduction of the 50% discount down to 25%, which essentially increases the amount of tax you'll pay at the end of the day by 50%, quite a significant increase in capital gains tax. Uh, and can you imagine, you know, if they doubled the tax income tax bracket, there'd just be outrage, but anyway. Uh, and lastly, negative gearing done to death uh, only on established property uh, only applies to established property purchased after 1 January 2020 Um, new property still attracts negative gearing you carry forward the income losses to offset the future profit created by that particular asset or property or investment because it applies equally to shares and property uh, or you offset the loss uh, should you ever pay, uh, sell that property and make a capital gain. So they're the five uh, proposed changes uh, by the ALP that, that could potentially impact property investors directly. Uh, so let's start with the first question. The first question I asked of Jared is, you know, if, they, if the ALP win the election on the 18th of May, 
what does he think is going to happen in the in the property market? So, how what impact will it have? Um, and in so, and the the question was in two parts: what what impact will it have before one January twenty twenty, and what impact will it have longer term? Uh, Jared suggested that uh, it's likely to increase the level of activity in the property market, although. Uh, Stock levels tend to spike anyway in the in the spring uh, months, and that's kind of what we're leading into uh, after the election. Uh, and uh, but whether that's going to have an impact on prices, he was sceptical whether it was going to have an impact on median price levels, uh, but more property and market specific. So patches in the property market will obviously benefit from uh, some price growth as a result of that increase in in demand. Uh, so he thinks it's going to be a bit patchy. In terms of longer-term outcome, he thinks that uh, the, the properties that are benefited from that price growth uh, potentially in this calendar year uh, might uh, either lose that growth or uh, stagnate for a, for a period of time. And he thinks the market might take a few years just to uh, re-equalise and adjust to the fact that there's no more negative gearing and um, and that uh, investor activity relatively subdued over that period of time, and as a result, probably the property market won't do a whole lot. So you know, so sideways uh, movements are certainly not projecting a, a massive crash in prices, nor is he projecting a, a significant increase in prices. Uh, and um, he cited uh, APRA's recent changes in 2016 that uh, reduced investor activity, but uh, in 2016 and 2017, the market was still relatively strong. So he's sort of suggesting that, well, maybe investor activity will still um, be quite subdued, but you know, how much impact will that have? And you know, he sort of said, obviously, certain sectors are going to be impacted more if you're in an area that's dominated by investors. Uh, then that then you're likely to see uh, that impacted more significantly by the ALPs ch- changes. And I talked about just notionally when I explained to clients uh, the the prospect of a good, a quality investment grade property is that just notionally you might have 20 buyers, potential buyers from every seller. So that is any one particular property will have excessive demand, a lot of people that want to buy that property. And of those 20 buyers, maybe 15 can always pay more. You know, they've got the financial resources to keep bidding to pay a higher price than what it sold last time. And of those 15 uh, people, they all come from different backgrounds. Might be first home buyers, upgraders, investors, downsizers, professionals, retirees, you know, a broad spectrum of, of different buyers. And that's what you're looking for. So if there's changes to native year or capital gains tax, okay, a few of those buyers drop off. Maybe you don't have 15, maybe you have seven, for example, at worst. Uh, but you're still going to get price growth with seven. And, um, and that's what so Jared was uh, alluding to in terms of sectors of markets and, and those sorts of things. Uh, then Jared asked me about how are these changes really going to impact on investors. And I drew, uh, and I made a couple of comments. The first one is that if negative gearing is to be banned, uh, it will reduce borrowing capacity Investors' borrowing capacity between 9 and uh, 23%, depending on the lender. But I looked at the big four lenders and it was in that range. Uh, so, uh, And the reason for that is that if a lender takes out the tax benefits from negative gearing, 
um, it has a cash flow impact and therefore uh, lower borrowing capacity. And I wrote a piece in for the Weekend Australian uh, just recently to elaborate on that. The link will be in the show notes. Um, so that's the first thing. So even if we get our head around the fact that, oh, well, we're happy to wait and buy a property after 1 January and we can get our head around the fact that there won't be any negative gearing benefits, one of the other factors that you need to consider is, well, maybe you won't have the borrowing capacity after 1 January 2020 because of as a result of the negative gearing. So uh, that's a, a component. So borrowing capacity is an issue. Uh, the other effect is obviously the cash flow. Uh, to hold a particular asset, uh, it's going to cost more because you don't get that immediate tax benefit. Uh, and what I did is I drew a couple of really, I think, important charts. Again, the, the links are in the show notes. And I projected uh, in today's dollars uh, the cash flow with and without negative gearing on a $750,000 property. The value, the net present value of the the high negative cash flow over a 20-year period is $83,000. So it is your $83,000 out of pocket, more out of pocket as a result of not having negative gearing. Now, from years 21 to 30, you're actually better off because you've got those carried forward losses. So you're not paying tax for a long period of time. So you are actually saving tax from year 21 to 30, and that's a positive 25. So all up, you're talking sort of circa $50,000 over a 30-year period, $50,000, Then um, that obviously, uh, you know, to, to some people, that obviously sounds like a, a lot of money. Well, not to some people. It is a reasonable amount of money. But if you, if you think about that in context of capital growth, which is the second chart that I drew, um, it's actually not that significant. So uh, what I did is had a look at the, or I charted, the cumulative negative cash flow of a particular property. So you know, how much money you're really putting into it after year after year after year. Obviously that increases uh, from year one to 20 and then starts reducing as the property's paying uh, income back to us. And then I compared that to the um, after-tax uh, cash gain or net proceeds that you receive if you go and sell that particular property. So after you pay for selling costs, repay the loan, pay for capital gains tax and so forth. And at year 20, when the cash flow cost peaks at $83,000, as I mentioned, uh, the after-tax uh, capital gain, so that's the amount of cash in your pocket after that period of time, is $1.2 million. So 83000 versus $1.2 million, you can very quickly see that whilst negative gearing is important, uh, it's uh, very much dwarfed over time by the, the capital gain. So, you know, investing in property, assuming you get the asset selection, works uh, just as well. Uh, well, not just as well, I mean, as well um, with or without negative gearing. Uh, of course, there's a cash flow uh, impact. Uh, but, in, you know, and in context, we need to really understand that actually the capital gains tax changes uh have a significant impact on uh, investment returns, after-tax investment returns, than uh, what negative gearing does. The next question I asked, Jared, is there is there anything that existing investors should be doing? Because obviously, if you're an existing property investor, nothing really changes. You still keep your negative gearing benefit. Um, and essentially, uh, Jared was sort of saying, well, it's a, it's a marathon, not a race. So hang in there. Tax changes happen. The market will adjust. Uh, if you've got the right investment property in the right location, it still will work as a good quality investment. Uh, so stay the course. 
Um, uh, if you've got underperforming assets, he was suggesting maybe at 20, 2019, this calendar year is a good time to divest of those assets to take advantage of potentially an increase in demand prior to the negative gearing changes uh, kicking in. And by the same token, if your plan was to divest of any assets, even investment-grade assets, if that was the plan over, say, the next one to two years, then you certainly might bring that forward and do it in this calendar year rather than doing it next year or the year after. However, if it's, you know, if if the plan was really still three or four or five years out uh, in terms of making those changes, uh, selling property and so forth, um, hold off, don't necessarily be impacted or or, um, seduced into making decisions or bringing forward decisions just as as a result of these uh, potential uh, tax changes. Uh, so it was good advice from Jared. Uh, the next question Jared asked me was really, will negative gearing be banned? Um, and even though it's being proposed, we are still a long way from being banned, even if we assume the ALP will win the election on the 18th of May. Uh, they've got to get their, um, well, they've got to draft the legislation, put it out for comment and get it back through the parliament all before 1 January uh, 2020, that's going to be a challenge just in itself for really almost any piece of legislation uh, to pass that quickly, uh, notwithstanding something so controversial and complex as, as what they're proposing. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is they've got to get it through the Senate and uh, even retired Senator Graham Richardson, uh, who used to sit on the front bench of the Labor Party, uh, uh, he was quoted as saying, and I quote, Buckley's chance of getting it across. So a lot of people are very sceptical about the changes being made as proposed. So I'm not saying negative gearing won't be banned, but uh, they'll probably have to negotiate and make some changes. And I think that probably the fairest, if, you, if, we, if we agree, let's just put aside for a second and assume we agree that negative gearing should be reduced or banned to some degree, uh, I think probably the fairest way of doing that would be to restrict negative gearing rather than banning it outright. Uh, so that is maybe limit the amount of gearing benefit you could claim in any one year to maybe $20,000 or something like that. And then anything over that, you've got to carry it forward to at least allow people to go and buy one or maybe two investment properties uh, to sort of uh, help them uh, build their wealth. The next question I asked Jared was, uh, the ALP has cited one of the benefits of their negative gearing policy is that it should stimulate Uh, supply uh, of new housing uh, because obviously negative gearing is still applicable to brand new built property uh, and also uh, help housing affordability and he was quite sceptical of those uh, assumptions. Uh, He suggested well perhaps if we assume that um, post 1 January post negative gearing changes uh, that the investor demand will be greatly reduced he said well perhaps in that sub $750,000 level, the typical kind of first home buyer sort of range, perhaps they've got then less competition. And in that marketplace, they might be aided as a result of that. Uh, So, um, uh, but overall, and then again, in some sectors of the market, uh, where that's going to get some demand stimulus, that could certainly help. But his view was that if you're investing in an investment grade location with very diversified demand, uh, that it's unlikely to have uh, a long-term impact on housing affordability and therefore not really meeting the policy aims. The last question 
uh, that Jared asked me was uh, what can investors do to adjust their approach or investment strategy as a result of these uh, changes in tax? And I cited uh, five uh, possible solutions to that, uh, which I'll go through uh, right now. So the first one is asset allocation. So if you're um, if you don't get any negative gearing benefits anymore, then maybe what you should do is be a little bit more conservative about your borrowings uh, and or invest in assets that generate more income, like such as commercial property, Australian shares or bonds, uh, to an extent that at a portfolio level, your income's balanced out. So, you know, you've got some wealth in shares that is going to generate an income and maybe even some imputation credits. And then you've got property that's producing a loss. Uh, and at a portfolio level, hopefully you can um, balance out those those items. Uh, secondly, uh, aggressive debt reduction. So instead of um, going and buying investment property, instead of adopting the strategy of going and buying investment property, getting interest-only loan and just letting it sit there and you, you fund the holding costs for, for the first maybe 10 years and then it just does its own thing, instead of that approach, maybe... Uh, an, an alternative approach is to spend a little bit less than on an investment property to so reduce your borrowings and then aggressively attack the debt over, the, say, the first five years to try and get it to neutral cash flow as quick as possible. Uh, the third idea was buy-in super starts to become significantly better off in an environment with no negative gearing because you can claim a tax deduction to make additional concessional contributions into super, which then fund the negative cash flow of the property, uh, and you get a full tax deduction for that. So it's almost like, well, it is exactly mathematically the same as getting negative gearing benefits, but obviously it's inside super as a result. Um, and uh, fourthly, you can shift money in offsets. So if you've already got a couple of investment properties and you've got some loans against it, and if you've been listening to anything I've been prattling on over the last 17 years, it's never repay debt, always put money in offset accounts. So you might have these properties that you've bought over the last 10 years with a bunch of cash in the offset accounts, and your portfolio's you know, neutrally geared, or maybe it's positively geared. Um, what you can do is go and buy that new property, borrow for it. Okay, you won't get the negative gearing benefits, but what you do is you take all the money out of your offset accounts linked to your existing investments and put it all in the new loan offset account. So what you're trying to do is maximise then the net borrowings on existing assets that are entitled to negative gearing and reduce the borrowings on new assets that aren't entitled to negative gearing. So just by moving monies in offsets allows you to re-gear assets or gear assets at different levels. And lastly, uh, last idea was uh, potentially, and we haven't seen the, the legislation obviously yet, but potentially uh, investing uh, using other vehicles like a, a unit trust uh, might be a good way to sort of get around the negative gearing changes. So it depends on how it's uh, worded. But if they say listed shares and property, you know, that you can't negatively gear for listed shares and property, well, borrowing to invest in an unlisted unit trust, for example, uh, might still uh, be deemed okay. Uh, and that might be another way to access the negative gearing changes. The only problem there or the only challenge is you've got to set up a unit trust and run that. Uh, but the costs of doing that are f significantly less than, uh, than the negative gearing benefits themselves. 
Okay, so that's a, a sort of quick 20-minute summary of the uh, presentation, which lasts about an hour, and I hope you get time to sort of watch the video. I, I found it uh, really interesting to be involved in and listen to, in particular, Jared's commentary around the property market and his expectations. Uh, so I hope you get a chance to look at that. Of course, the link is in the show notes, as always. Uh, and I'll be taking a bit of a break. I'm uh, taking some leave and haven't scheduled any uh, podcasts or blogs for while I'm away. Uh, so for three weeks, uh, I'll be absent. I apologise for that. Uh, but by the time I get back from leave, we'll know who the new government is and what we're dealing with. And uh, rest assured, I'll be uh, riding away like a madman to come up with my thoughts and share them with you. Uh, so until then, bye for now. <laughs>